Welcome to Depollution, the podcast from Salvador. Over the last 13 weeks, we have interviewed some very interesting and inspiring leaders who've been there to discuss issues that are facing the vehicle salvage and the vehicle recycling industries, along with some other leaders who've been challenging and inspiring to the whole industry. In this episode, we're going to look back over some of those podcasts and some snippets from some of the uh, more interesting leaders and some of the interesting responses that we've had from our questions. We're going to start right at the very beginning. Mark Robb from Positive Reframe. Uh, and Mark is talking about management and the basically he's talking about engagement and having engaged staff. We'll follow that up with uh, Paul Diodamo talking about monkeys and Adriana Lee is going to finish off this management section talking about leadership with sport or leadership from sports. So have a listen to these uh, three snippets from these three wonderful people. Yeah, you mentioned you mentioned engagement. Um, you know, can you explain a little bit more detail? Can you go into a bit more about that? What you're measuring? Uh, what sort of engagement you're measuring? Mm. Is that is that people? Is that customers? Uh, what what are you looking at? Yeah. So that's that's the emotional commitment of people in the organisation. So if you, so Gallup, for example, one of the world's largest research organisations, and sort of at the forefront of the the metrics around this. Um, and so they would say, you know, classically, there's three types of employees in any organization. So some people are engaged, mm-hmm. so that's loyal, productive, find the work satisfying, emotionally committed, you know, there with the head as well as the heart. Um, and then you've got people who are not engaged, who are more neutral, go through the motions, you know, got an eye to the clock, maybe doing the job and not doing a lot more. And actually, some people are actively disengaged going to work to make it worse for other people. You might have met them. They're out there, well poisoners. But Gallup would say, you know, certainly if you take the, the UK perspective, sadly only 11% of the UK population are all in, fully emotionally committed. 68% are not engaged and 21% are actively disengaged. So that's problematic in two ways because clearly, you know, the, there are more actively disengaged people than engaged, which is a problem. But also it means at best 89% of people are not engaged. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's the, that's the number we're trying to measure now. I mean, in terms of how you measure that, you know, well, there's just different ways of measuring. You know, Gallup have a well-established deck of twelve questions, which are, you know, um, I know what's expected of me at work. Um, I have the tools and equipment I need to do the work right and at work. I have the opportunity to do what I do best every day. So you're playing position daily. Mm. I've had praise or recognition in the last seven days. I mean, I could run through them all, but but the point is there are specific um, touch points around whether people feel they have a voice, whether they feel that the mission and purpose of the company makes them feel like their work's important, whether there's development happening, how much affirmation they're receiving on a weekly basis, and some of these timeframes are important too. So when people strongly agree to those uh, questions, that that's what's pointing to emotional commitment. So those are the things then we're trying to equip leaders to do differently. So very practically, if one of the key insights is that, you know, praise and recognition is a massive driver of human performance as well as motivation, um, then, you know, what are leaders doing to actually give more affirmation and correction? And so we'd be equipping them on how to do that, how to balance those things well, um, so that, you know, you can start to move the dial in how people perform. So when we're talking engagement, we're talking specifically about the emotional commitment of people. And the big correlation, of course, is when you compare top quartile engagement business units to bottom quartile engagement business units, the customer metrics are 10 points higher when people are engaged, productivity is 17% higher, sales are 20% higher, profitability is 21% higher. 
but also things like absenteeism fall off 41% and safety incidents go down. And so there's a whole series of um, commercial benefits from engagement, but also it decreases a number of things that are undesirable in organisations like absenteeism, staff turnover, etc. So that's that's the, the big thing that you're trying to do is you know get people emotionally committed. Wow, there's there's some amazing figures there. I mean, I mean, you know, sales up, um, uh, safety incidents down. Um, oh yeah, absenteeism, yeah, yeah. absenteeism down as well. That's that's incredible, incredible responses. Um, you spent a number of years as a consultant to the industry. One of your most memorable sessions involved monkeys. Uh, can you explain in more detail how a monkey helped you to uh, train leaders and owners in the vehicle recycling industry? Well, I recognized early on that, you know, I find that family businesses can sometimes be very um, micromanagement oriented. And so I came up with this seminar, Don't Feed the Monkey, to basically kind of get inside the business owner head and business owner's head and don't feed the monkey is kind of a, you know, playful target monkeys. Everyone loves animals. And sometimes you don't want to impinge on someone's authority or intellect or emotions negatively. So I kind of come through with uh, the idea of, you know, micromanagement, understanding that typically in a family business, there are um, family issues that oftentimes come into play. And I, you know, came into a situation where my father-in-law had purchased Bill's Auto Parts as a retirement project. So he had not been there his whole life. So you know what happens. Dad says, well, we've always done it this way. And as I've come to realize that or grandpa or grandma um, are the most expensive words in business. We've always done it that way. That means they're reluctant to change. If it's not broken, don't fix it. And how do you get people to see, you know, put the mirror in front of them and recognize, oh my goodness, that's me and I've got to change, and I'm all about change. So don't feed the monkey. We talk about all the different things that happen in small business, a new way of looking at it, but I also did a little exercise where I would have everyone stand up, and I would describe certain animals, and they would have to guess which animal it was, and then they would decide if they fit the description of that animal. So for example, the first one would be the lion. And, you know, honestly, in a room of small business people, you think most people are going to say, oh, I'm a lion. Honestly, I was surprised oftentimes, maybe 25%. The next, and some people would be hedging, like, hold on, I don't know what's coming next, so I don't want to commit. Aha, a character trait. The next one would be the golden retriever. You know, loyal, loving, stand by you, not what really wanting to change. And then the next one would be the beaver you know, very analytical. And you can start to see in people's minds where they're like, oh yeah, uh, the beaver. And, you know, so basically we'd go around and then the last one would be the otter. That's someone who's more like the person who's gonna organize things. I tend to find myself in that category. Um, I like to organize things. I like to have people work as a team. Um, I'm not necessarily one who's going to come in and just pound it down your throat, regardless of personalities. So once they separated, I also gave them the chance to move and decide maybe I am really a lion or a beaver. But now I turn it around and say, hey, what about when you're hiring people? If you're looking for an inventory guy, you probably don't want an otter or a lion. 
And maybe you don't even want a golden, you want a beaver, you want someone who's analytical, who can describe parts for their, what they look like, their age, and take a very analytical approach where I wouldn't necessarily put that person at the front counter dealing with customers because they take an hour to sell a lug nut. Because they're gonna describe it every which way, right? So obviously we can't, that's your dominant personality. And I would ask them, say, look, I'm asking you to describe that. Now, obviously at these trade shows, you'd have a lot of couples, wives and husbands. So when the husband went off in one direction, sometimes I'd see the wife going, no, 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 no. Come on, you're a teddy bear. You're the golden, you won't fire anybody. Right, the lion, no problem. Um, so it was really a great uh, time. I mean, we had as many as 50 people. And literally, if you're not familiar with the DISC test, uh, many people out in the, in the world have taken the DISC test. It's a personality kind of test. I do the DISC test in 20 minutes with four animals. And people get it. And I would get, so now, I, hey, my friend Andy, Lath Andy Latham sent, brought me a Cadbury uh, monkey. I had someone from Texas send me one. I mean, I got monkeys. Uh, in fact, my whole team now on stay home work, they all have a monkey with them. And it's a reminder that I'm right there with them all the time. Fantastic. That's amazing. That is, that is oh, amazing. One last thing. So if I give someone a monkey because they've got a monkey on their back, and that's another part of this. Get the monkey off your back. Do one thing. So oftentimes I'd say, look, when you feel like you've gotten that monkey off your back, give it to someone else. I'll tell you who um, a good friend of mine, Ryan Gardner, worked on American down in Fort Worth, works for Barry Rubin, good friend of mine. He called me up last year and says, oh my God, the damn monkey he says, I finally had the courage to tell Barry I need X, Y, and Z because I'm spending most of my time doing accounting work. And he says, it's been the biggest burden lifted off my shoulder. In fact, this guy, Andy Latham, had called me about a story about the monkey about a year ago as well. Remember that? I did, yeah, yeah, very much so, very much so, yes. Now you've been leading, you, know, you said earlier, leading a law firm as an office manager, now leading eCompliant and James Environmental. Talk us a little bit about your leadership journey, about, about how you learned to be a leader, how you learned to, to lead people. So I grew up around sports my whole life. Um, my dad was a professional athlete and my older brothers were professional athletes. And getting to that point um, in, in their career, it took them being able to lead their team and working so hard to attain their goal. Um, and I think that it's, so it all starts with hard work and getting there and then working as a team, connecting your team so that you know exactly what piece works with what, you know, what employee works well with, you know, what job description and, you know, how to gather all of that. So growing up, I had amazing role models for that. I grew up playing sports as well. And um, I, so I did cheerleading most of my life, which is, a sport, although some might disagree, um, but it is, it's a pretty dangerous sport. And, you know, when you're holding someone's life in your hands up in the air, basically, or, you know, someone's holding you up in the air, you have to really have a lot of trust and timing and really know what's going on. So that um, 
that led me all the way through college. I cheered all the way through college. And then I even coached cheerleading from, you know, from 16 till I was 25. And um, that understanding of pieces and how everything works together and leading by example and working, you know, up through all of the areas. And so you know what everyone's expected to do, I think has helped me become the leader that I am. Um, I started out at James Environmental as an intern and I've worked all the way up through. And so I've done every piece of what everyone here does at uh, the company. And, you know, starting with eComply, we've started rebuilding our whole system as well. So I've, I've you know, gotten all the way back to the coding aspect of eComply and, you know, to the front end, talking with the customers and seeing what they need and going through all of those pieces so I can then educate my employees on what they need to do. And then working together to know strengths and weaknesses and bringing all of those pieces together to make a good fit and a strong team. And I think we have the strongest team that we've had um, maybe ever. Um, and we, we really connect. And despite, you know, the COVID setbacks of everything, we've been working so well together, even online, uh, just because we have that strong camaraderie and we know what everybody needs to do and take care of. Amazing. A hot topic for uh, some of our interviews have been reclaimed or recycled parts. And both Steve Fletcher from the Automotive Recyclers uh, of Canada and Adam Murray from Aviva have some interesting comments to say on this. Um, but what does the vehicle recycling industry have to do to achieve greater acceptance and use of recycled parts in, in vehicle repair? Uh, we need to really understand what the repairers are doing or not doing and sort of what their drivers are. I've always said our, our parts are demand driven. They're, they're driven by people other than ourselves. You know, we can knock on more doors, we can do a lot of things, but ultimately we need those repairers. Um, and on the collision side, the insurers uh, understanding how we deliver parts, how we do things, um, and we need to understand how they're using them. So there's a lot of pressure from the automakers to have their repair procedures as the gospel, as the only thing that you're allowed to utilize in order to fix a vehicle. And oftentimes their incentive to save a vehicle by using a, a cheaper alternative like used isn't there. They'd much rather sell a a new vehicle um, or making sure that their part departments are, are really successful. So if anything, we need to get closer to the repairers so that we understand their business model. We did a lot of that uh, five or eight years ago. We would have the repairers come into our facilities and just see how we handle data, the level of sophistication. And we would go to their operations and look at, you know, how are you writing an estimate? You know, where are you getting your data? Where, where can we give you data earlier in the process so you can understand it? We've lost a little bit of that interaction with the repairs. And I think that's one area that we're looking at. How do we work with the insurers and the repairers to make sure that all three parties to that uh, economic triangle are healthy, but still the manufacturers are inserting themselves there and, and 
it's it's a difficult conversation to have with them to remind them that remember when we were working on the standards for licensing of auto recyclers you needed a, a healthy auto recycling industry so you weren't responsible for that vehicle at end of life and we need to have a little bit of data exchange so that we can make sure that we're still healthy to do that we know and you know, we've, we've known for a long long time that uh, pretty much the whole of the UK collision repair industry is is using brand new parts. Um, yep. but, there's, but there's been a drive over a number of years to put uh, recycled or reclaimed parts into, into vehicle repair. How? What do we have to do to achieve much greater acceptance and use of reclaimed parts in, in vehicle repair? Okay. My personal view is to legitimise the use of reclaimed parts. And the first step to doing this is to publish a standard that sets the framework of requirements for the parts mm -hmm. to be measured against. This work is underway and I'm already seeing a change in acceptance within the industry and what needs further testing is the consumer acceptance of the use of these parts. Yeah. That is where the difficulty may arise. Insurers are regulated businesses and must maintain compliance to FCA and other requirements mm -hmm. under regulation. One of the requirements is not to put the financial gain in the way of delivering customer service. That's a hurdle that some insurers will find very difficult to overcome. Right. My may generate some follow-up questions around the parts standard. You can imagine that some insurers uh, would see this as a cash cow to deliver a cost saving. Mm -hmm. my, my expectation is using reclaimed parts uh, allows us to share the benefit of the cost model with the partners involved, that means the reclaim facility, the the supplier, that's the repairer, and perhaps the insurer might get some revenue back as a result of mm -hmm. using reclaim parts. Mm -hmm. But the industry needs to be completely transparent with the customer, and this will take time to deliver consistent application. Yeah. Evidence-based feedback to underpin the use of reclaim parts. It operates in many countries across the globe, why should it not work in the UK? Mm -hmm. If the industry adopts a consistent approach and uses the reclaimed parts and no one abuses the application, we have the foundation to build to make this programme accepted and universally uh, beneficial. Right. Okay. That's good. And you've said, and I know you've said it, said it before, that um, reclaimed parts cannot be safety-related parts. Can you explain in more detail why, why you've taken this stance? Yeah. So... Aviva are an insurer who consider carefully how we mitigate and manage risk through all our programmes to ensure that we treat customers fairly and deliver on our purpose with you today for a better tomorrow. Mm -hmm. One of the simplest ways to mitigate risk is to identify the most common areas of risk within a process. Safety critical performance components present the largest risk in the repair of motor vehicles. Yeah. If the component cannot be tested to deliver a proven standard of performance, it cannot be reused in the repair of customers' vehicles. Right. The risk is too high. If these components were remanufactured or a testing mechanism could be developed that provided certainty of performance, Aviva may adopt a different approach to these components. Mm -hmm. In the absence of this certainty of outcome, we simply cannot put our customers at risk. Yeah, yeah. Looking at uh, technology, Tony Simpson from the Institute of Automotive Engineer Assessors was talking about artificial intelligence and how this is going to significantly change the vehicle damage and the vehicle assessment programs. 
technology is changing how the vehicles are assessed. Uh, and, and we've seen it in our time, you know, when, when I know when, when I first started as, as a vehicle damage assessor, it was physical inspection all the time. And then we had image inspection come in. Um, and you know, some years ago, we're now moving towards um, artificial intelligence, uh, AI, uh, an AI assessment of the damage. What impact will this have on the Institute, firstly, and its members? And how different will vehicle damage assessing be in, in 10 years' time? Um, yeah, as you rightly say, uh, historically, it was physical, uh, a physical inspection to assess the damage. Uh, and the, the, the image um, assessment method has its place, predominantly more on the lighter cosmetic damages on external panels. Mm. Um, the physical inspection still has a place for major structural damage. Um, AI coming in, yes, it, again, it, it, it's uh, an enhancing tool. And I, I think it is without doubt, it has its place to speed up the process on the, on the minor external body panel damage. But again, when you've got major intrusive damage, you still the uh, physical inspection still has the advantage over it. And ultimately, it's going to reduce the, the number um, and capacity of engineers required. Mm -hmm. But it, it can create the more specialist engineer on on to make the right judgment call on the severely structurally damaged vehicle and, and the viability of a repair. But there again, of course, with, with within modern architecture, I'm finding that once once the the, the main frame passenger's cell has been damaged it's, it's going to be a total loss yeah. without a doubt yeah the, the major the, the the days of the major crash repair are, are finished now mm. Mm. david cresswell is going to finish off our, our podcast with uh, a subject that pretty much everybody has mentioned when asked what could be done better what could be done differently Almost everybody said licensing, licensing of vehicle technicians, licensing of companies, licensing of engineers. Uh, and David's response to that question is very, very well worth listening to again. And is there one thing, one thing that the UK government could do that would have the biggest benefit to the collision repair industry? And, and what would that be and why? Um, it would be to license repair shops, yeah. license body shops, collision repair centres. Um, it does seem you know, always amazing to me that cars are quite rightly homologated. They have to meet type approval um, and um, they don't have to, but they all try to get the Euro NCAP five star safety rating from the crash tests. And then there is absolutely anybody. We could have Andy and Dave's body shop and we could legally, legitimately repair a car that then goes out and falls apart at the next impact. Um, and I just don't understand how that is allowed. You have to be licensed. I do a little quiz when I speak on stage and I, and I say, spot the odd one out. And there's a, a florist, a, a pet groomers, a chiropodist, et cetera, et cetera, a butchers and a body shop. And the different one odd one out is the body shop because that's the only one that doesn't need to be licensed. You have to be licensed to be a nightclub bouncer to cut someone's hair to run a pet shop. Um, you don't have to be licensed to repair a motor car. Amazing. It's, when you put it in those terms, that is amazing, isn't it? That is incredible.
that we would. I think more people are probably killed by cars falling apart, uh, badly repaired, than, than than you know are killed in a hairdresser's. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> not that you need one so much, Andy. No, 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 no. <laughs> not now, not now, not now. And giving back. Craig Van Battenberg is a wonderful character and his podcast is worth listening to on its own. But Craig is very, very good at giving back to people. So uh, have a listen about, uh, as he talks about Fat Cats, his uh, charity for foster kids. Amazing. Now, one of the things I love about about you and, and, and Deb is that for years you've given back uh, and you've given back you know, very much through Fat Cats, your Fat Cat yeah. program. So can you it's explain? Can you yeah. tell more about everybody, cats and, and and how people get yeah. involved? First of all, I think everybody would give if they had something to give. And sometimes you don't realize that you got something. To, what you can give is your talent and your time. I had the talent, the time, and the money. So that was all free, right? And also the personal story, of course. And it's on. We have a brand new website. We literally on Friday, fatcats.org has its own website now. F A A T. C-A-T-S dot O-R-G. It was always part of our website, which I never liked. And I have a new employee, Kina. So Kina is an electrical engineering student at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. She's wicked smart, as we say in Boston. Wicked smart. <laughs> and because she's wicked smart and we're slow, I said, just redesign, just do a website for us. So we launched it on Friday. It's a standalone website. And it tells you our story. In fact, I was in touch with both of my sons, Michael and Will, over the last couple of days. And they're the two boys we adopted. I said, would you do me a favor with the help of your mother? Write your own personal story about your adoption experience in our family. We're going to post that up there when it's done. Uh, but yeah, Fat Cats stands for Foster, Adopted, and Abandoned Teenagers. And Cats is Can Attain Transformation Successfully. It's a goal. It's a destination. The destination is to, to work with boys primarily. Not that we don't like girls, but boys have a harder time getting adopted. Because by the time you're 13 or 14, you're big. You're angry and nobody wants to adopt you because they're afraid and they don't want to get adopted. I know that from personal experience adopting my son, William. He got adopted at 17. So, yeah, we raise money, about 15,000 bucks a year. We send boys in Rhode Island to camp for a family reunion with their siblings so that the parents have disappeared either through death or through abandonment or through imprisonment. We have a lot of people in prison here. Probably shouldn't be, but that's a whole other story. One of the final questions we ask everybody on the podcast has been uh, about their first car. What was their first car and have you had any special memories of, of that first car? It's been great fun listening to some of the answers and uh, it's been some quite different cars. It's been some quite eclectic vehicles. We had a, a, a Nissan, a Datsun 240Z, um, Ford Mavericks, Toyota Tundras from some of our overseas uh, um, guests. But, mo- but the uh, most common vehicle across the whole of the uh, podcast series has been the Mini. Four of you started life, started your driving life. Your first car was a Mini. And uh, there's been some great stories around around those vehicles. So uh, go back to the podcast. Go back to uh, some of these podcasts and re-listen to them. They've been great, great fun. They've been very challenging. They've been very, very inspiring. And thank you for listening. We'll be back in September with a whole new series of podcasts with a whole new bunch of people. Uh, and we can, we'll continue to challenge and inspire the industry. Thank you all for listening. Have a great summer.